Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Will Attenborough. And he's just like stroking him very sensuously up and down like he's playing the harp or something. <laughs> and oh, I was like, oh no, they're going to fuck us. <laughs> that and more. But before that, don't forget, you don't have time to go to the post office. You know, it's just too much of a hassle. It's too much of a time waster. That's why you need Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you get all the amazing services of the U.S. Post Office right at your computer. You just use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. With Stamps.com, you get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. No wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com like Risk and the Story Studio do. And right now, our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale. Without any long-term commitment, just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Risk. That's Stamps.com, enter Risk. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is the clash behind me now and we are calling this week's episode live from london too holy shit i had such a beautiful wonderful glorious time in london doing the show at the london podcast festival those folks could not have been better it was just a beautifully run festival we had such a lovely audience there you know we rarely do this anymore but i decided to run more or less the whole show all four stories were fantastic and the audience was just so sweet that i thought wouldn't it be fun to do a whole episode that's just live from london again Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from a fantastic storyteller named Lyra. But before that, we're going to hear from someone who has been on the show a few times now, and we love her so much. She's also in the Risk book. If you don't have the Risk book, go get the Risk book. (laughs) I am talking about Nimisha Ladva, who you can find on Twitter at Nimisha Ladva. Here she is now, live in London, with a story we call... The Wasp.
So first, a quick dedication. I haven't lived in this country for many years, and so tonight in the audience, I have friends and family who I haven't seen in 15 or 20 years. This story is dedicated to them, their fathers, and mine. So I'm an Indian immigrant, and while I live in America now, I grew up in Solihull, just outside Birmingham. <laughs> and um, the spring that I turn 11, I'm watching the news, and I see something that confuses and scares me. I see dark-skinned people that look like me, police and skinheads clashing. It's the time of the violence in Brixton. And my father comes in, and he sees me sitting there with my shoulders all hunched up and rigid, and he just puts his hand on my back, and he says, what are you worrying? Hmm? Those crazy nonsense people are just on the TV. Got it? They're not here. We just be who we are and do what we do. Samjige, do you understand? I kind of think I understand, and I let my shoulders relax. So we do keep doing what we're doing and being who we are, and among those things is we are Hindu and we are vegetarian, and so when bugs get in our house, we simply take them outside. So that spring, a gigantic wasp gets in the house. The stinger is so big, it is visible to the naked eye. So my mother, she rolls up a newspaper and she says, Bhagwan mane maaf karjo. Dear God, forgive me. And she does what she has to do. She hands the newspaper to my father. <laughs> but my father does not take it. He walks right up to the wasp, clasps his hand around it, his bare hands, and he just walks it outside. And my brother and I are watching this. We're just like staring like our mouths are down here. And he walks in and he looks at us and he says, I'm your father. My job is to put things where they belong, including you two monkeys. <laughs> and we don't really care that he's just insulted us because we are realizing for the first time in that single moment that our father, dark skin, skinny shoulders, thick glasses, that man, that man is badass. <laughs> So, living in Solihull at the time, we were quite an anomaly, actually. We were, as far as I could tell, the only non-white people who lived there. In fact, I remember playing outside in our garden one day, and a neighbor just walks by with, like, family from out of town and points to our house and says, this is where the colored family lives. Like, we're a tour on a landmark tour or something, and uh, they just keep walking. And, um, you know, things would be hard at school from time to time. And when things got bad enough, my dad would come to school and he'd talk to the teachers and they'd all like promise to make my life better. But I did have friends. I had a nice girl uh, who was a friend of mine. Her name was Deborah. And she had like a freckly face and like a page boy haircut. And we used to like have lunch together. And we're sitting down to lunch. And my favorite part of lunch is pudding because I never got that sort of food at home. I mean, my mom would get excited about something called Ringra Nushak which is basically eggplant 
prepared in the slimy Indian manner. And I, don't, I know no human child who likes that dish. So, and she would expect us to be excited about that. So, but Deborah would say things like, oh, my mom made lemon tart yesterday. I'd be like, okay. Or, the, or she'd say, oh, we had shortbread in three flavors last night. Or she'd say, oh, does your mom make German chocolate cake? I'm like, no, she does not make German chocolate cake. And so one day she finally says to me, do you want to come to my house for tea? I say yes. <laughs> and then I ask my parents for permission, and they say yes. And um, the only thing we have to do is wait for the school day to end, find her little brother, Michael, and the three of us just have to walk home to Deborah's house. Now, the pavement we have to walk on is so narrow that we can't all walk together. So we take turns holding Michael's hand. And as we get close to her house, it's my turn to hold Michael's hand. And uh, Deborah whispers in my ear. She tells me to ask Michael a couple of interesting questions. So I say, Michael, what are you going to be when you grow up? And he says, I'm going to be a star. And I say, Michael, what are you going to do when you're a star? And he says, I am going to twinkle so brightly in the sky. And we're like, oh my gosh, we're giggling and laughing, we're holding hands and we get to a house. I see that they have the same red roses that my dad has in front of his house. Deborah rings the doorbell. I'm really excited. I'm holding Michael's hand. The door opens. And as soon as I see Deborah's mother's face, I know that something is wrong. I don't know what it is. So I look where her eyes are looking. And they're looking at my hand holding Michael's hand. And I let go immediately. And the very first thing she says is, Michael, sweetheart, will you go inside and wash your hands, please? Can you wash them twice? And then she says, Deborah, this is the friend you wanted to bring over for tea. Will you tell her she can't come inside, okay? And she walks away. So Deborah and I stand in front of each other. We don't know what to do. And she does the only thing she can. She closes the door in my face. So I'm standing there in the garden, looking at my hand, and it feels disgusting to me. I don't really know what to do. I start to cry, but I, I realize that I am not ready. I don't know what to do about Deborah's mom. And in fact, Deborah and I don't know what to do about her mom either, and we pretend nothing happens, and we just carry on as you do. So... That same spring, I remember we were coming home from, um, from somewhere or another, and we had to take the number 44 bus, get off at the terminus, and to get home, the only thing we have to do is cross the road and walk about 10 houses down. Now, the problem is with this night, right across the street where we have to walk are a group of like 15 young men with very closely shaved heads, skinheads. As soon as they see us, they start to shout at us, go home, go back to where you came from, and we hate you, and for my mother, who is draped in a sari, take it off. My mother, hearing that, takes my hand and my brother's hand and says to us, look down, look away, and walk this way. And she leads us away from the skinheads, away from our house. But my father says, Our house is this way. And his finger points right in the middle of the group of skinheads. 
A young man in the middle looks up, and the strange thing happens. Like, my father just like lets go of all of us, and he walks across the street right into the middle of the skinheads. He's walking so fast and sure that they actually make way for him, and he puts his face right next to the face of the young man. And I see for the first time what my father has seen. It's our neighbor. And he says, Good God, Frank. Does your father know you are here with these crazy nonsense people? Does he know? And then he just comes back and he takes my hand, he takes my brother's hand, he tells my mom to hang on, and he literally walks us home through the wasp nest of skinheads and gets us home. The next day, we wake up and I can hear my parents arguing. And my mom is telling my dad, you know, nati jao, nati jao, we don't go, don't go. And I realize that my dad wants to go and talk to Frank's family. And she just wants him to let it go. And my dad says, nana, jao per se, I have to go. And he does. A few hours after his visit, the doorbell rings. I run to the top of the stairs so I can look down over and see who's there. And I can see that it's Frank. He's not wearing his skinhead jacket, just his school uniform. My father opens the door and he says, it's good to see you, Frank. Come on in. Frank comes inside our house. They sit down. They have some tea. And eventually Frank says, Mr. Ladva, I'm really sorry. And my dad says, you did the right thing to come here today. And then my father puts his hand on Frank's back and gently walks him outside. No stinger. I realize, I realize many years later that the incident with the skinheads was one of many indignities that my parents went through. And eventually they did get tired of living in England. And my father decided that he needed to move us to the one place in the world that he believed that liberty, equality, and freedom <laughs> were available to everyone. And so he moves us to America. And to be fair, I've sort of taken a multicultural happy life for granted by living in America. And I have grown up there to become a woman, a dark-skinned woman who's married to a very white Jewish boy from Chicago. And, you know, I've just sort of assumed we'll always have, you know, twice the culture, double the fun, latkes and samosas, Hanukkah and Diwali. It's going to be great. And it has been. But I have stopped taking that multicultural future for granted. And I'll tell you exactly when. After the 2016 election, the summer that followed that, we went on holiday to the seaside and we get to the beach. It's lovely. My children, who are four, seven, and ten at the time, they are sort of playing in the sand with their father. They're making, I don't know why, but they are making just a giant hole in the ground. <laughs> that is what they're doing. And I'm like, oh, whatever. I pick up a boogie board and I take it into the ocean. I find myself sort of relaxing into the waves and the sun is sprinkling and it's like, it's just like glittering. And I'm by this group of like young people, probably college age. I mean, they are very good looking. Like they're the sort of people you'd put on a horse riding magazine cover. I mean, they look lovely, and they're just like jumping around in the ocean, and I'm jumping around the ocean, and, and then I hear something that one of the young men says, 
And uh, he says, hey, Rachel. And she says, hey. And he says, are you Jewish? And she says, no, I'm not Jewish. He says, oh, okay, just wondering. And she says, all right. He says, I was just checking you weren't Jewish because, uh, you know, that's good. And she's like, okay. And they're just like, laughing and getting it, keeping going. And then he says, you know, I did. I, uh, I just knocked down those two hijabis down there. And she says, oh, by accident. And he says, no, like a target. And they start laughing. And he goes, dinner, dinner. Dinner, 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 dinner. And like Jaws, he just like swims into Rachel and they uh, start laughing and giggling and they are having fun. I'm just like floating there, stunned. And I look to the side to find the two girls he might have been talking about. And they're sort of obvious at the beach. And I realize they're no more than 12 years old. They're little girls. And they are, well, they're just carrying on as you do. The next wave carries me back to the shore. The same wave knocks that young man down. <laughs> I get up out of the water and I start to walk towards my family. And I can hear him yelling. I can't hear exactly what he's saying, but I can tell he's angry. As he gets up out of the water, the undertow pulls him back down and now he's really upset. He turns around, he sticks his middle finger up at the ocean and I start hurrying back to my family. I stand in front of them with my hands at the hips and I see him getting closer, and I start to panic. I look back at my children, and I have a thought that I have never had in my life. I worry for the first time that with their double culture, could they be subject to twice the harm? I start to shake. I look back. The man is getting closer still. I look down to avoid eye contact. And I start to think of my father. He's 75 years old. He's had a brain tumor operated on two times. His hands shake a lot. The man walks up right next to him. And I look up and I look at the man right at him. And he keeps walking. Because my father can no longer take the wasps out himself. But I can. And I am ready. Thank you. Namisha Ladra! I had, a, I had a lovely date with a fella the other night here in London, and he was asking, oh, what are these stories about in the show? And when I was telling him about Namisha's story, I summarized it by saying, oh, it's about a woman who moved from England to America because she thought it would be less racist. <laughs> and that got a big belly laugh. <laughs> I want to bring our next storyteller up to the stage. Such a thrill to meet her. It's been so nice working. The workshopping of stories behind the scenes is such an honor uh, to go through, to like get to know a person, get to know their concerns about their story, get to know how they're like putting the beginning and middle and end of everything together. And so this has just been, I'm so excited about it. You can find Lyra's blog at medium.com at 
Trans Sex Ed. Please welcome to the stage, Lyra! So I came out as trans um, when I was about 25. And I think I first realized that I was trans. I had no idea for most of my life. Um, it was just kind of something buried very deep inside. And when I first realized, I just spent three days in bed reading blog posts, forums, anything I could find about trans identities. And it's just like this thing meant so much to me. Kind of after about a week, I'd already been thinking about it quite a lot. Like, I didn't know what it all meant, but I just knew very clearly, like, I'm not a man. I felt like I've always been close to my parents. I need to tell them. Now, my parents, they were from South Africa. Um, In the 1970s, they felt like they couldn't live under the apartheid regime anymore. So they moved to what was essentially a small enclave of hippies in a small town called Swaziland. My dad was the lawyer, quite well known for sort of taking on the cases of the underdog and having a very bushy beard. My mum was the mathematician who would go around in really baggy trousers and sandals and make tomato jam. (laughs) So kind of having these very lefty kind of hippie parents, I thought, you know, they've always been very accepting. This isn't even a thing I need to worry about. I should just tell them. So I was living in London. They were living in Wales. I decided, yeah, I'll just give them a ring, kind of rip off the Band-Aid. Start off talking to my mum. At some point it came out just like, yeah, mum, I've been thinking a lot and uh, I've realised I'm not a man. I don't know what else it means right now, but I kind of needed to tell you. She didn't really know what this meant, so we started talking, and you know, she's a mathematician, she's always been quite an academic and really interested in like how knowledge works. So we ended up having a kind of one hour long conversation about gender theory, which was very interesting, but it wasn't about me. And sort of all ended up with her saying, well, you know, this makes a lot of sense, but if you understand your gender identity and it's such like an internal gender identity so clearly, then can't you just be as you are now? Like, you don't need to change anything because you know who you are. It's like, mm. So I kind of didn't have the energy to keep going. It had already been a long time on the phone. So I asked her to pass over to my dad. Dad, I've been thinking about it a lot. I've realised I'm not a man. My dad was a lot more shocked. Um, he didn't know what this means. I think he is very, like, he, he's very caring. He was very concerned for his child going out into the scary transphobic world. He phrased this by saying, you know, well, I just hope that you've got someone to help you, you know, look like a woman because I don't want you walking around looking like a freak. And... I now know what he meant by that, but all at the time I just felt like I'd been kicked in the stomach and I just had this word like going around and round and round in my head for months. So that that conversation just ended there. I hung up. About two weeks later, they said, you know, okay, we have to talk about this, so we're going to come visit you. So they came down to visit. We tried to have this conversation, but I was already, you know, pretty much closed off. 
the only point of reference my parents had was Caitlyn Jenner. So they tried to say, oh, you know, I read this thing in, in a, somewhere in the right-wing press about Caitlyn Jenner and they were using the wrong pronouns. And I kept you know, trying to say, like, it's she. And at one point, my dad just kind of exploded and said, it feels like we're going to be walking on eggshells around you for the rest of your life. And I don't see how, like, I can never use they pronouns for you. I burst into tears um, all I could do, were, they, they were visiting me in a one-bedroom flat in South London. It was February, so I went and sat in my kind of two-metre-by-two-metre concrete garden in the pissing-down rain and cried. <laughs> we didn't talk about it for the rest of that visit, and I just kind of said, you know, okay, we'll enjoy your time here, but that's it. After they left, I felt, you know, this is enough for me to deal with on my own. Like, I can't also deal with the stuff going on from them. So I stopped talking to them. Uh, I stopped returning their phone calls, ignored their messages. Um, When they kind of tried to make moves to come and visit me, I just said, you know what, no. Uh, I need time to work stuff out. Like, I just need you to not be here. Until kind of a year later, some things were starting to feel a bit clearer for myself. And I was also starting to think about my childhood and think about the times in my childhood where I had sort of had this like, huh, I don't think I'm a man. And I remembered my parents being around in all of these memories and like me stealing my mum's heels and running around the house. And like, I still really wanted those same loving, accepting parents to be in my life, but I need them to kind of come along with me. So I sat down and I wrote them a long letter um, you know, I explained this is something that you know you might think it comes as a surprise to you. It also comes as a surprise to me. This is you know something that was heavily repressed all of my life because people around me who made me feel like it was something to be ashamed of, not because of bad parenting, and that I do want to keep talking about it, but I need you to think about what you're saying and think about the fact that it, it has a big impact on me. And that actually works. We started having a dialogue by letter and kind of very slowly building that relationship back up again. Meanwhile, I had been doing all of my trance exploration kind of on my own. And kind of very far aside from the family relationships, I was... um, completely in a mess around sexual relationships because suddenly I realized what dysphoria was like I hated every part of my body and I didn't want anyone to see my body or touch my body but I also sort of wanted intimacy and those things don't gel together very well so for a while it was just a very simple like just don't have sex or see people or try anything and then it was like okay well maybe I can start getting out there a bit but I don't know how to talk about it so let's just see what happens uh what happens is the sort of sex where you kind of don't talk about anything and then it gets to a point where it's like okay you've been munching on my nipple for 20 minutes and it's actually painful now and I just feel bored and tired and maybe we can just sleep so I kind of got to this point where I was like okay actually I need to understand like I need to understand this body I need to understand what I want like sex ed was like pretty rubbish when I was a kid anyway but 
sex ed coupled with gender dysphoria like out of the question so I went to back to basics and I thought what I need to do as well is really concrete these things in by writing it down and because it's been so hard for me to find advice and support online I can write these down in a blog and maybe it will help me but maybe some other trans person will come along and it could help them as well So I started writing about my processes of self-exploration, about how I was relearning to masturbate and to uh, how I started to explore and take time on my own to touch myself, to stroke, squeeze and tickle every part, to learn about the secret known only to trans women called muffing, which I'm not going to go into because that could take 15 minutes of its own, but it's just this like amazing new world opened up and I could write about these new parts of my body where it's like, that can make you feel pleasure. I also discovered like independent trans and queer porn and I actually wrote a review for a Chelsea Poe film called Femme for Femme which starts off, there is something magical about femme for femme sex. Fuck gentle caresses. I want to be fucked hard by someone whose eyeliner is on point. (laughs) And this was, like, I felt like I was starting to express myself. I was seeing trans people having sex the way that they wanted to. I was understanding different parts of my body in different ways. And it made, like, a dramatic uh, impact on my life. But it was still... Like, it was a box. It was my sex blog box, very well hidden over here, and then the rest of my life box. And I was just a bit scared about what people would say and about people reading it, but also terrified about, like, what happens if my parents read it? One day, my parents... (laughs) A while after... So this was about six months after I'd sent the letter. Um... You know, our relationship was slowly improving and they came to visit and we were just kind of having a generally average visit, had a a long day in, kind of staying in over endless rounds of toast and coffee and sitting around the table and it, they didn't know at this point that I'd started hormones and they started talking about, you know, how is your transition going? We wanted to talk to you about this thing just to make sure that you know about all the risks of osteoporosis and, and the things that can happen if you take HRT and you're not aware. And then my dad said, also, I don't know if you've ever considered the fact that, you know, if you start taking estrogen, you might have erectile dysfunction and that could really affect your sex life. And it was just like something clicked. I wasn't going to talk about my sex life to my parents, but, you know, he's gone there now. And this is something that I know quite a lot about. Like, you really do not need to have an erection to enjoy sex. So I said, well, actually, now that you mention it, you know, that is something that I know about, and it's something I don't care about, because I've been writing a blog, and I've been learning about all the different ways you can get enjoyment out of sex, all the different parts of your body that can give you enjoyment. And I've been learning about BDSM, This is an acronym that I thought was kind of universal. Uh, It's not. (laughs) So my mum looks at me. I should say now my mum has... She has a a very expressive face and especially really expressive eyes. It's a thing, like, 
when I was a kid, you know, my mum's angry because she gets these giant eyes and it's just like, okay, what have I done? So she turns to me and she just kind of says, sorry, what does BDSM stand for? And kind of without interrupting the flow of my sentence, I looked at her and went, oh, it stands for bondage and discipline, domination, submission, sadism and masochism. And every word that I said, like her eyes doubled in size. <laughs> and yeah, so I, and I just kept telling them about my blog and about actually, I have thought about all of this and actually I have been on hormones for six months. And after that conversation, I kind of thought, I've been keeping this blog really secret and because of that, I've not been promoting it and because of that, it has a readership of like two, one of whom was me. <laughs> Um, so actually now I've got like I'm in all of these trans communities like I know a lot of trans people this is something that a lot of people talk about and I know could help people so I want to get it out there and I've got nothing to be afraid of like I've had that conversation so I pulled it like out of this void and attached it to my Twitter started publicizing it and kind of saying Loudly, I have just published a post. And also posting them on Facebook. And the first time I put my blog up on Facebook, I think a couple of hours later, just a little thing came up that my mum has commented on your post. (laughs) And it was just this little comment that says, you know, I've read through all of your past posts and it actually really helps to put a lot of things into context and understand what you're going through. And thank you so much for sharing. And it was really touching. Um, But it kind of made me realise that I'd gone through all of this transition on my own. I'd not shared anything with them. And although I'd started to let them in more, like, I'd not, not really let them in. And they were actually desperate to be a part of my life and to understand, like, actually what I'm going through as a trans person. And that made me realise that actually I do... They are ready. They're ready to hear more. I can tell them more. And, I mean, my mum's heard it most already by now, so there's kind of nothing that I can't say. And I started sharing more, and they started sort of saying explicitly, we feel like we want to be on this journey with you, and please tell us more. They are some, now some of the, the kind of the strongest trans allies I know. A year ago, I got diagnosed with testicular cancer. My parents were some of the first people that I told, and they flooded me with care packages and made sure I was well looked after. And then two months ago, when that was healed, and I got diagnosed with another quite curable cancer, again, like, they were there to come along with it. And, like, they're coming to visit me and, like, help me through chemo next month it feels like it all started off with this, like, silly conversation about BDSM. And, like, I I just know now that every time I write something, and my blog isn't really exclusively about sex anymore, but whatever I write, whether it's about trans politics, data protection legislation in relation to trans people, or about sex, or about porn, like, I always know that my mum will be my most avid fan and be the first to kind of thank me for sharing... So, yes, thank you.
This is Risk. This is Transgender Dysphoria Blues by Against Me. And we just heard from Lyra. Now, you're going to want to check out Lyra's blog that she mentioned in the story. It's at medium.com slash at transsexed. I'll tell you, I had such a wonderful time hanging out after the show with Lyra and with our helper. We, you know, we have a volunteer that helps out whenever we take the show out on tour. And that night, it was a guy named Vincent who was super sweet, told me all about the London Vagabond, which is the scene name of a couple of artists and kinksters over there who are just doing amazing work. You can hear them interviewed on the podcast called Fucks Given. It was just such a treat to meet so many you know, kinky and or queer folks over there. And it makes me want to come right back as soon as possible. Now, September is National Life Insurance Awareness Month. Most people aren't aware of that. In fact, most people aren't aware that they need life insurance at all. That's why 40% of Americans don't have it. But getting life insurance doesn't need to be difficult or expensive. Right now, prices are the lowest they've been in 20 years. And Policy Genius has made it easier than ever to get covered. Policy Genius is the easy way to shop for life insurance online. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and the red tape. If you need life insurance, but you just haven't gotten around to it, National Life Insurance Awareness Month is a good time as any to get started. Go to policygenius.com get quotes and apply in minutes you can do the whole thing on your phone right now in fact i'm looking at it on my phone right now and there's so many other kinds of insurance that you can shop around for there too policy genius the easy way to compare and buy life insurance now we're gonna get back to the show in a little bit we're gonna hear from someone who we haven't heard from since the last time that risk was in london and that is radcliffe roids but before that we're going to hear from the actor will attenborough who is related to everyone you've already heard of called attenborough (laughs) he has hosted the moth there in london and he has a new podcast coming out called honesty is my hot hot sex here he is now it's will attenborough with a story we call honesty is my hot hot sex Hello. Actually, Kevin said before we came out, like, when I curated the show, I had to, like, spread out the queer in, like, terms of the stories. I'm afraid you're going to get more queer from me. Um, So my story, it starts off about my godfather. My godfather is this guy called James. James was adopted, as was his sister. They were adopted by Southern Baptist parents in Texas. Both turned out to be gay. So, like, what did they do in a previous life? James, when he was a little kid, said to his dad, I really want to learn how to play the piano. And his dad was like, okay, but if you're going to learn the piano, you got to learn how to lift weights as well. (laughs) And James was like, 
Little did my dad know there'd be this massive like muscle craze in the 80s gay scene and he had just got me so much penis. <laughs> would never know. <laughs> um, but sadly at the time, you know, James, he thought if my dad ever finds out that I'm gay, he might kill me. So at 17, he ran away and through a lot of struggle and homelessness, he made his way to New York where he wrote a play. And that play was directed 35 years ago for the first time here in London by my dad. That's how my parents met, and they've been best friends ever since. James, for me, like, we just have always clicked. He's just, it's like a pure blessing to have him as a godfather because he's like my little partner in crime. And uh, we call him the mermaid because he now has like this stacked bodybuilder physique on top, but then it all goes terribly like camp around his legs. <laughs> and um, when I was a teenager, we got really close, and he started writing me these letters in which he told me about a guy called David, and he said, when I was a bit older than you, I fell in love with this guy, David, who's the love of my life. You know, James still dreams about this guy to this day. And he said, when I was in my 20s, David got HIV, and he died in my arms. And for months after that, I'd find myself ducking into the, the doors of strange brownstone buildings in Manhattan and just weeping till I vomited. And the only thing that got me through was knowing I won't have to live too long myself because James also is HIV positive. But he didn't die, kept living, kept working. Five years later, he fell in love with a guy called Mark, who was with Mark for about five, six years. And then Mark got HIV. And the same horrifying ordeal repeated itself. But James said, I still choose to fall in love with people because that's what's remarkable about being human, that we can still do that even knowing how awful it can end. And he got married not long ago to this amazing guy called Philip. And he said at the time, you know, well, I, I never expected to be married and it was never something I particularly sought after. But now that I'm here, it's like I'm in this place that I never knew existed. It's this new level of intimacy and unimaginable joy. And I know because of my experiences with grief, I'll adapt to it. That's like what we do with extreme emotion. They don't, those feelings don't go away. They just become manageable. And so I know that this wild joy will become just every day. But I'm so lucky that I got to be one of those that lived long enough to find it. There's no story I've ever heard that's meant more to me than that. And so when I was in a very vulnerable place myself, it was James I first told that I was queer. And for the years that followed that, I, I struggled a lot for various reasons, you know, family and bullying and blah, 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 all of which are stories of their own. But one of the main things that I found really difficult is that I'd hidden this thing in my bedroom for 20 years. And then you have to go out and like tell your parents about it, for one. Like tell your parents this is what I masturbate about. But also, which is bizarre, as we discussed. But also then enter this gay scene that can be intensely sexualized. Like men can be a little horny. I don't know if you've like seen... And I wasn't ready. Like, I, I'd go into gay bars and I'd just freeze up. Or I'd, like, guys would come on to me and I'd kind of want to run away. And at this time, I was identifying as gay, but still just sleeping with women. And so my friend said, well, Will, technically you're a lesbian. <laughs> um, and my godfather, James, didn't get this. Like, he was bemused by it. Because when he came out, he had loads of sex. Like, he and his first boyfriend would drive around picking up guys for threesomes. He was kind of like, what are you doing? Like, you're missing the party. Get out there. He'd say to me, 
go out on your own, like lose your friends, then you'll, you'll have experiences that you wouldn't have otherwise. And I was like, that idea terrified me. So I didn't do that. I just stayed stuck. I never had any boyfriends. And my dad told me recently that around this time, he said, I asked James, do you think Will's really gay? <laughs> and James said, um, well, being gay means you have sex with other men. And so far, I'm not sure Will qualifies. <laughs> it's annoying because it's kind of funny, isn't it? But he's very like, annoyingly witty. But I was like, that was so crushing because it was this thing of like, oh, I'm not a real one. I don't qualify. I haven't got the certificate yet. I couldn't explain to him why I was struggling because it was like, I haven't suffered anywhere near what he has. So the only reason that I must be finding this difficult is because there's something wrong with me. Like, I'm too weak to do this. So not only do I not fit in with the scene, I'm disappointing the guy that I respect the most. And so I thought, okay, what I've got to do is like, like a gay equivalent of man up, like a gay up, you know, like be a gay. <laughs> and... Um, I had this idea, like, I'll go and stay with James. He lives in L.A., so I was like, if I'm in Hollywood, I'm with my fairy godfather, I'll meet loads of gay people, and I'll loosen up. And when I get out there, I get in touch with this guy called Oscar. Oscar is a British guy, moved to America to marry uh, his husband there, and he's like a friend of a friend from London, so I text him saying, we've never met, but could you please introduce me to some fun gay people? And he replies very sweetly, of course, like, come to our place on Sunday, my husband does a chat show in our living room. It's like super camp. We all get drunk. It's a bit of a party, but there'll be loads of fun gay people. And I'm like, this is so LA. I love it. Okay, great. I'm going to put myself out there and go for it. And of course, I think like, this is exactly what James wants me to be doing. And when I tell him, he has this kind of sly smile and he says, I'm sure I'll have a really good time. <laughs> Sunday rolls around. I get a cab to this boho suburb. I'm dropped off like outside this trendy olive green bungalow and it's on this really nice leafy street and the door has just been like insouciantly left wide open like as if like look how carefree and uninhibited we are <laughs> and I can already hear the sound of trendy gays having a fabulous time <laughs> I'm so nervous because I've never met anyone here before but I step in and it's just very cool, you know, like oakwood floors, kitsch furniture, lots of like cool looking, like young creative people, queer people, trans people. They're all like really fashionable and like wearing hats and things. <laughs> I, my like, <laughs> my like very pink British skin is, it's a California day. So I'm like hot and sweaty and I feel like I'm just broadcasting insecurity. But Oscar comes over, introduces himself and he's so confident. He's got this like kind of mixture of posh cockney like that kind of Mick Jagger thing of like hello babes and he's like he's wearing shorts and a salmon pink shirt which like the front door he's just left open and it's like his belly is on display and he doesn't mind that there's no body shame I'm like who are these people and so we settle down for this chat show Oscar's husband Louis runs it and he's like really funny and witty and sharp the whole thing's super camp they like film it on an iPhone and stream it online. It's really charming. And afterwards, everybody spills out into the garden. Oscar's like, who wants rosé? And people are like smoking weed. And like, at first I'm very intimidated because they, they know so much about pop culture and take it very seriously. There's a lot of like, oh, like Aubrey Plaza's definitely winning an Emmy this year. Like, did you see her on SNL? It's phenomenal. Like all these things I'm just sort of like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> but it's very charming because they're like, they take it very seriously. Like it really matters. 
and I like start to relax, like a little bit tipsy. The sun's out. I think like fuck the sunblock, you know, bum's not here. <laughs> and I relax, and I'm having a good time. I'm making friends, and though I had only planned to stay for a couple hours, I'm there till the evening. At which point most people leave, but Oscar says, "It's the Grammys tonight. We're going to watch the Grammys. You watch the Grammys." I'm like, "Yeah, fuck it. That sounds great." So it's me, Oscar, his husband Louis, their friend Jack. We settle down like on these sofas, watch the Grammys. These new friends of mine are incredibly funny, and I feel like, "Oh, I found my people. This is great." Oscar is sort of lying on me a little bit at the stage, and I start to feel his hand like start rubbing my back. And I'm like, "Huh, that's weird." Maybe he's like a, just a very tactile person. This is—it's LA, so I was like. But then I looked at his husband, and Louis has their friend Jack like laid out across his lap, and he's just like stroking him very sensuously up and down, like he's playing the harp or something. And I was like, oh no, they're gonna fuck us. <laughs> <laughs> I've been so naive. Like I just thought. We were four queer best buds, like watching the Grammys,、Woo. and I'm not ready. Like I'm so not ready for it. I wasn't really like attracted to them. I've just been enjoying making friends. My first instinct is like go home, go home,、um, and then it's the adverts, and Oscar's like, oh, it's an advert break. Why don't we play spin the bottle during advert breaks? <laughs> so like, okay. This is escalating. Say something. So I say, look, man, I'm, I'm trying to be coy about it. I'm like, I'm not gonna fuck you guys tonight. And he goes, "Huh? We'll see. We'll see." <laughs> so then we're playing spin the bottle, and people are kissing each other, and、uh, I'm really scared about like what's going to happen next. But I'm more scared. What if I leave? Then they might be like, "Will's so uncool and like prudish or something." And also, I have this voice in my head saying, "Like, this is why you you're here. Like, this is why you came to LA." Go out on your own, you know. Gay up, buddy. Don't wuss out. So, well, now like <laughs> they're not even bothering to spin the bottle at this stage. Everyone's just making out, and it's chaos. And I keep like sort of there's like a bit of me that's hoping. Well, maybe we'll like go back to watching the Grammys at some point. <laughs> like the advert's over, we can watch Katy Perry. We don't have to kiss. People start like. Undressing and、uh, Oscar and Louis unbuckle their belts and they've got these like terrifying erections. And、uh, also they do this thing of like, oh, look at that! Like, how did that happen? Like, it's like a like a sexy magic trick or something. It's like very unsettling. I, by contrast, cannot get hard. Like I'm so in my head, I feel like I'm observing everything, but I'm not part of it. And now I'm just like praying, oh please, 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 like please get hard. We start making our way to the bedroom. People are like pretty much naked by now. I've still got my underwear on. And、uh, Jack is like, "What are you like? Why are you still wearing that?"、And、pulls them off, and I'm like so humiliated. Louis says this thing where he goes like, "Have you hooked up before?" And it's crushing. It's that thing again of like. Not a real gay. Don't have the card, you know. I can't do what you guys do. I feel like I'm exposed as this inexperienced boy. I say something like,、oh, "I'm just sort of not really there in my head," and they're like,、oh, "Okay, whatever." Like they're not—they're perfectly sweet about it. I think, to be honest, because they're more interested in coming than like worrying about what's going on with me. <laughs> so 
we have this like four way and uh, I'm very much there to serve like I <laughs> definitely there for everybody else <laughs> and when they have finished the atmosphere relaxes there's like a bit of kissing and like smoking a little bit of weed and it's like oh I can kind of enjoy the sensuality of this now without feeling so under pressure I go home the following day I come into the kitchen where James and Philip are having their toast and I have these two big hickeys on my neck and I pretend that I'm embarrassed about them but obviously I'm so proud because these are like my badges of honour they prove that I've done this thing and Philip and James are like their eyes wide and they're like oh my god so Oscars was fun and I play up to it I'm like well you know it wasn't really just Oscar there's a few of us actually and James and Philip seem thrilled for me uh, Philip gets out his foundation and starts like covering the hickeys on my neck <laughs> And I notice James has this like little cheeky smile and I think, God, yeah, he's really proud of me. It's like, now I have made it, right? Like, look, Geppetto, I'm a real gay. <laughs> About a month later, I'm out with a, a friend of mine called Jeremy at like some bar. This sound, makes me sound very cool, this story. I'm not that cool. And I spot this guy, Jack, from the four-way. And I'm like... <laughs> I know that guy, and I go and say hi, and he's like, hey, honey, you know, we have a little talk, and, and Jeremy's like, um, how do you know him? And I was like, well, I get to say, well, we hooked up, which is like a fun thing for me to say. And Jeremy says, Will, you know, he's a porn star. <laughs> and gets up on his phone, all the porn. <laughs> this guy, Jack, is like this twinkie porn star. And... <laughs> Well, that's it, right? Like, for Jeremy, and possibly for some of you lovely people here today, that's like jackpot, right? It's like, I can tell, I know in the moment there's something cool about this, like, foursome with a porn star in LA, that's a great headline. And the more that I tell the story subsequently to people, I see that it's, like, impressive to them and, like, kind of cool and scandalous or whatever, but it just feels emptier for me because I know the reality of that experience it wasn't glamorous or sexy, it was embarrassing, and so I'm still in the same place that I was before I went to LA. It's just that now I'm pretending to like what I think I should like. And so about a year, a year ago, so more recently, I found myself sat on a bed with my godfather, James. And I was just overwhelmed by anxiety and my voice was all shaking. And I said, um, I just for once was just started to be really honest with how I was feeling with him and said, I'm scared that I'm wasting these years where I'm supposed to be having all this cool fun, like my 20s, just being anxious and lonely. And I can't enjoy having sex with men. I can't have boyfriends, and I don't know what it is that's wrong with me that I can't get through this. And James was sort of like, well, maybe you have like a bit of internalized homophobia. You know, I feel like you're looking at gay people and in a way judging them for doing the things that you want to be doing. And I said, yeah, and I'm scared that makes me a failure. And he took my hand and he said you're my favorite person in the world. You're not remotely a failure. This is difficult. Like, of course I know that. And I've probably put pressure on you, and I'm sorry. All I ever want for you is to be safe and happy. And uh, I realized, well, I found out. James didn't have, like, tons of sex when he first came out because it was, like, super fun, necessarily. It was because he, that was his way of dealing with his stuff, his trauma and his repression. I know now I respect him not because he had loads of sex but because he's open about who he is. I sent James a story 
and got a response from him this morning. He was just so kind and loving. And I realize when I'm open and brave about who I am and the things that I want, he respects and accepts and loves all of that in me. Thank you very much. Well, Attenborough! Okay, we have one final story tonight. Our, our final storyteller, he did the show the last time that Risk, and the first time that Risk came to London uh, in 2014. Please welcome to the stage, Radcliffe Royds! Hi there. Well, um, don't let the shirt fool you. I'm heterosexual. I feel very out of place. Um, but it's lovely to be here tonight. And I want to talk to you about that, that crazed moment, that thing that affects every part of your life. Everyone in this room will at some point feel it, has felt it. Every strata of society, man, woman, child, everyone's going to fall in love at some point. I fell in love which is fantastic. Problem was, I fell in love with, with a Welsh girl. Not that she was Welsh was the problem. Um, I want to talk about, uh, talk about marriage, really. You know, I've had several wives, two of whom are my own. Um, and uh, I'm going to talk about the first one. Um, the wonderful thing about meeting that person that you think is going to be that helpmate, that soulmate, is just fantastic. My problem was that I grew, up in, I grew up in Northumberland, which is always a problem. My father, for example, he was wrestling with the fact that the feudal system had come to an end. <laughs> and my mother, who brushes her hair to answer the telephone um, and runs the Al-Qaeda wing of the Mother's Union in the Church of England. And, and I was a heroin addict. Mm-hmm. Ah. Uh, mm. And it's before the watershed. Okay. I was, I was a heroin addict, and I, I'd gone to all the right schools, um, which was great. Um, but I had, my family had rejected me, quite rightly, as it turned out, um, for a number of reasons. Um, one of which was, I remember, the, I remember the Christmas before this great marriage idea came up. My mother said, you've noticed you've not been asked home for Christmas, darling. <laughs> I said, yes, I'd spotted that. And <laughs> said, that's because around here, she said, uh, memories are very long and the headlines were very large. <laughs> And um, the local paper had had a field day with little Lord Fauntleroy, uh, Fraud Fauntleroy, has over bank, Hoodwink's bank as it was. Um, and it was a confusing time because I had actually stolen some money which didn't belong to me. And um, it was the end of a confusing period because when I'd been expelled from school, also for drugs, drugs were a recurring theme in my life at this point. Um, my teachers and my parents, they sort of with bafflement say, you can be anyone you want to be trying to inspire me, and um, they lied, because the magistrate certainly didn't agree with me being his son when I was pretending to beat him to take the money out of the bank account that I was <laughs> using in London in his name. Um, so I had I'd gone down a very dark road, and uh, drug addiction it does destroys families, and I do not advocate it at all, and I had a long battle with it. And part of the way that I thought that I could make my life work was that I'd settle down and get married. And that was not a cynical thought. It was a genuine thought. I'd, and and my, 
my paramour, I'd been at school with, so I knew her. She knew me before I'd taken drugs. I'd slept with all of her friends. She did say that helped because she knew I wasn't going to go and cheat on her. Um, I'd gone through the five people that would sleep with a heroin addict in those days. And she said yes for all sorts of the wrong reasons. But we believed in the fact that we could be together and we would be happy. We genuinely did think that. And she is um, very old-fashioned and her, an aristocrat and her parents... I had to ask her father for his permission. Now, I don't know if anyone here has ever been in that situation where you've had to ask for a girl's hand in marriage. You know, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. Well, it's a simple thing. You just say, and I'd like to marry your daughter. And, of course, the, the excitement, because her mother and, and Emma was my um, wife-to-be's name, or hope to be, were hiding behind the door in the morning room, which is confusing because you only ever use it in the evening. Um, it's not easy being posh, I can tell you that. But, um, <laughs> just bear with me. You, you may learn something. Um, and I got him in the morning room and I, and I said, uh, Sir Lawrence, I, um, I, I feel sure by now you know how I feel about, uh, about your daughter. I'd very much like your permission to marry her. I won't do it, but he st- stood for two minutes saying nothing. And then he slumped down on the stair. And went, well, if that's what Emma wants, welcome to the family. And walked out of the French windows. (laughs) I felt that small. The fact that I was an unemployed heroin addict was bad enough, I grant you. But the real problem, I think, was that my surname is Royds, R-O-Y-D-S, and my wife's name was Emma. (laughs) (laughs) To actually have this question put to him. I mean, he was condemning his wife to, to a life of God knows what. <laughs> Do sit down. Well, no, don't. I mean, God knows. Um, it's sadly a true story, obviously, but the point was that, you know, the, we have these moments of social theatre in England, and I don't care what class you come from, you, we all have it. And, and if you come from my sort of people, you know, you have, the parents have to meet. The parents have to meet. And I thought, oh my God. Now, I my, part of my rebellion, part of the reason I was a drug addict is because my father was an alcoholic, so my way of rebelling was to take drugs. I didn't want to be like him. Um, <laughs> and he was quite, he, he, you know, he was not an easy man, and my, he was unkind, and, um, but I can't hide behind his excesses. It certainly doesn't excuse what I did, but the point was, it's not all me. And Emma and I said, right, well, and her parents very sweetly said, let's get your folks up to meet my folks. And um, they asked them up to their house in Anglesey. Great. We thought, that's fantastic. Now, my mother, <laughs> God, she's great. Um, and she said, now, darling, <laughs> she said, no, darling, you will, you will try and ask, ask Lawrence not to serve too much alcohol, won't you? And, you know, trying to stage manage my father's drinking was, was not easy. And if anyone has come from that situation, you'll know how difficult it can be especially if you're trying to hide a heroin habit at the same time. It becomes really difficult. But I thought, well, okay, we've got Lady Margaret, my suspected mother-in-law, proposed mother-in-law, the most disappointed woman in Britain, as she turned out to be. Um, On paper, should have been a good match for my father. She did like like a bottle, Smirnoff, she did. Um, I can tell this story now because they've passed on, luckily. (laughs) I can imagine the libel suit otherwise. Anyway... The idea was that they were going to get together, we were going to have this weekend, and we were going to sort of plan out the wedding. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, obviously, you're thinking mid to late 30s. <laughs> Prog rock is not dead, okay? I know, I, can, I got the shirt. But, you know, this is in the 80s, and um, in the 80s, 
well, it would, wouldn't have mattered when it was, but you know, my parents were still very old-fashioned, and, and her parents were very old-fashioned. We had to do things the old-fashioned way. So it was going off to stay with them. And I had to ask my father-in-law, not only had I insulted him by asking for his daughter's hand in marriage, I then had to say, please don't serve any drink and be a bad host, effectively, for this party. And my wife and I, to be, we were going to drive up from London to Anglesey. I thought, well, we'll get there early. We'll stage manage the bar. It's fine. Anyway, the fates decreed that uh, there were roadworks going up, and we were, arrived up four hours late, and it was really awful. And as we arrived at the house, my mother was sort of ashen, clinging to my arm in the hall, saying, oh, God, he's had three whiskeys and four gin and tonics, and Lawrence won't stop pouring his drinks. Help! And I thought, what is she going on about? And mind you, I could start hearing the, the strains of boxing and bicycling, fencing and tricycling, chapel and afternoon school, which is my father's old school song. Um... It's always a precursor to a bad night. And I thought, oh, Christ. So we went into the, um, back in the morning room again, funnily enough. Um, and um, he, my father-in-law said, uh, use it as an excuse for champagne. And I thought, oh, Christ, no, you know, all this whiskey, gin, now champagne. I thought, this is not gonna go. My father perked up, oh, I said, my mother-in-law, I'm not exaggerating, my mother-in-law went, oh, choo-choo-choo, we do love champagne, don't we? <laughs> She thought she was talking to her shih tzu. She was actually talking to a facsimile embroidered into a cushion. <laughs> on the sofa. And I saw her bewildered look when the dog didn't answer. It was hysterical. But, I mean, this evening was going from bad to worse. It has to be. I mean, it was just it was awful. Anyway, I managed to wrestle the bottle off, off Lawrence and pour very small measures. My father swugged back his champagne. And then he obviously needed to go to the loo. And sort of, we're trying to make small talk. And everyone's this. And we're trying to work. Well, you know. And my mother goes... He doesn't know where to go. He doesn't know where to go. I thought, well, he doesn't know where to go. So, oh, okay. so I go out of the morning room into the hallway and see him sort of tacking from side to side, bouncing off the walls, making his way up the hallway. And he didn't know where to go, but he could find the kitchen, which is fine. And uh, I followed him into the kitchen, and he was leaning like this against this kitchen unit. And I thought, what? Anyway, my mother-in-law, knowing that she was going to be drinking and knowing that it was going to be a relaxed evening, had laid out a hostess trolley for everything to go through to the dining room for, for supper. And there was mashed potatoes in one bowl and a, and a sort of pheasant fricassee, we like that sort of thing, and some, and some peas and plates. And, and my father, leaning over it, he unzipped his cock and started to pee all over the trolley. And, I saw what was going on. I said, what the fuck are you doing? Oh, Christ. And I managed to pull him off. So arcing, his cocks were spraying. <laughs> and, you know, it was the ones that were threatening you, young man, it was like that. It felt enormous, this thing. And I just saw this hosing his way around, <laughs> around the kitchen. My wife-to-be realised there was problems and walked in to see me sort of on my hands and knees trying to stuff my father's cock back into his trousers. <laughs> Not a good look. And um, the carnage on the trolley just didn't, I promise you, it didn't bear thinking about it. It was absolutely, it was Armageddon. And there was a sort of crater where it hit, direct hit on the mashed potatoes. <laughs> Fucking impressive. And it was now a moat. All right, all right. And I said, Emma, I said, right. And she said, don't worry, I'll get your... God, I loved her. She was so good in a crisis. It's probably why we were well-suited. Because she said, I'll get your father out. And she managed to get him out of the way. And I thought, right, I've got to deal with this. Now, I mean, let's be honest, a, a lesser man would have looked at it and gone, oh, my God, and done a runner or something. But I thought, no, this is the measure of a man, how he deals with a crisis. 
And I thought, fuck this. Right, the plates, they're easy. Whoosh, into the sink. Know, that's easy. The peas were, uh, it was indeterminate. I'm not sure what the liquid level should have been. I thought, I'll put them in the kettle. <laughs> Quick boil. That'll, that'll sort that out. <laughs> Through the colander, back into the dish. Not a problem. The mashed potatoes, that was the issue. I thought, fuck, you know. No, seriously. I managed to tip the moat out into the sink. Now, I'm thinking on my feet here, okay? I am trying to save the day. I'm trying to stop my parents and all being embarrassed in front of my parents. And oh, God knows what I was trying to do. Anyway, I managed to slip the potato over, whisked it out in back, fork, twist, twist, whoosh, 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 whoosh. Made a sort of fluffy pyramid that Tutankhamun would have been proud of. Um, just in time to sort of think, come on, everybody, supper's ready. And I said to Emma on the way, and I pushed the trolley through to the dining room, I said, you might want to go on a no-carbs diet, I, just for tonight. And uh, I said, what have you done with him? What have you done with him? And said, uh, my mother, Emma and my mother, had got my father up to bed. So he's out of the frame. That's okay. Now, of course, my father-in-law, Sir Lawrence, had been tormenting my father because they decided not to like each other. You know, you know how parents can do or men can do that? They decided not to like each other. And my father was a cavalry officer, minor title, and my father-in-law, slightly more minor title, and a Royal Marine. They, they were never going to get along. And now that my father was out of the picture, he thought he'd pick on me. You know. Now, I think I've been doing quite well so far. You know, I've saved the day, as far as I'm concerned. And he thinks that I should be putting all of my assets in my wife's name. And I can understand that. He thought I was unreliable. And um, he had a lot, of, a lot of reason to think that. And I was arguing the toss, left, right and centre, and it was getting louder and louder. And it was through the dinner party, it just kept, and he kept complaining. He said, Margaret, there's too much salt on these potatoes. And I just, <laughs> biting my thumb, not laughing. <laughs> anyway, at some point, you know, the row was getting louder. He can't, he can't really remember the conversation. He just go, bicker, 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 bicker. And uh, every time there was a lull, my mother would go, well, I was thinking of embroidering some kneelers for the church, you know, <laughs> desperately trying to cling on to something. And then when the awkward silence is really stuck in, you could hear this, I've got a ferret sticking up my nose. How it got that I can't tell, but now it's there. It hurts like hell. And my father was singing, not the school song, but now he'd gone on, he'd branched out. And then suddenly there was this sort of huge clump noise, and he fell down this fucking stairs. I can tell you now. And everyone looked, and I said, leave this to me. And I got him, wheeled him into the dining room, sat him at a table, and I said, now just behave. And... Uh, Margaret said, would you like something to drink? <laughs> My mother said, no, 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 something to eat, I think. What would you like? How about some mashed potatoes? <laughs> Which I served him, a very healthy dollop. I scraped the pan thoroughly, put it on his plate, and said, eat that. It was the worst dinner party of my life. It bears telling only in that what it served to do was show my wife that I was good in a crisis, that I could actually rise to the challenge, get people out of trouble. And we did somehow manage to muddle through that weekend. We did get married by the Reverend Piles <laughs> at St. Margaret's Church. But none of us, I'm afraid, understood the true nature of addiction in its pernicious ways. And seven weeks after the wedding, she did leave. Thank you for listening.
this week's episode folks this is mia behind me now another song in which london is calling and we just heard from radcliffe roids we first had radcliffe on the show in 2014 and it was a real honor to have him back on again such a character Don't forget, you can always find new information about where the next Risk Live shows are happening at risk-show.com slash tour. Just remember, you can always pitch us at any time at risk-show.com slash submissions, and you can get training from us at our school, The Story Studio. It's at thestorystudio.org. In-person workshops, Skyping one-on-one training. There's our corporate workshops. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Motherfucker. <laughs> Thank you very much. That motherfucker. I blew the mother fuck. Fuck. I've got a parrot sticking up my nose. <laughs> <laughs>